Hello, welcome to the Will to DIY. This podcast is a place for me to sandbox ideas, play with them, tinker with them, build on them, or perhaps just throw them away and get back to work. Hello, hello. All right. We're back and we're going to try something a little bit different. Uh, Instead of making four tiny podcasts, I'm going to bundle them together into a single four-part podcast. If you're not a fan of this, just let me know in the comments section. But let's get started. Part one. A man walks into a bar. Let's pretend this bar is legally open for the sake of argument and this man has the freedom to drink himself silly. But I should have the freedom from him cussing me out, assaulting me, and vomiting on me. I think this makes sense. Now, who enforces this? Either I do, individually, the other patrons or the owner helps out, or we call the police. So it's either me, society, or the law. Now, on our last podcast, we talked about Isaiah Berlin's ideas about freedom to and freedom from. This is also known as positive and negative freedom. And we talked about how this applies to the social contract. And that's basically, as a recap, that's when a government or an authority offers certain protections and rights in exchange for you being a good citizen, which mostly means you pay them money, but also there's this idea that you care about things and you're invested in the benefit of the society. So the basic premise of the social contract is you're not free to go around murdering people, but in exchange for that, you have the option to walk down the street without being murdered. Now, most people consider this a really good trade-off because no one wants to get murdered. Now, on a more nuanced level, we have these rights and we have this thing called freedom of speech. But we need to really pay attention to it because it's actually kind of limited. For instance, you can't intentionally cause other people harm. So you can't run into a crowded theater and start yelling fire just to see what happens and cause a panic. There are also laws against things like slander and libel. So basically, your free speech is not really free. It's A, paid for by your taxes, and B, it's not actually permitted in a lot of situations. Because for a society to really work, we can't allow your mouth to hurt other people or push them beyond the limits of what a, quote, common man might endure. You can, as evidence though, by the world in general, have silly, ridiculous opinions and state them loudly and often. You can even host a podcast like this and talk about drivel all the time. Now, the benefit of this kind of freedom, though, is if you want to sort of look at Tocqueville's idea, this is one of the things that stuck with me, is that perhaps we have a genius who is given this amazing freedom. He gets to develop these ideas really unrestrained. And these ideas that this one person develops end up saving the rest of us idiots from ourselves. So if you restrain speech or behavior, you also constrain the tiny percentage of geniuses that might change the world for the better. And of course, we don't want to make it too strange, but we can't forget about issues of consent. So for instance, do you have the freedom to sell your kidneys to put your daughter through college? Why not? Do I have the right to ask somebody to kill me when I'm terminally ill and I'm suffering? Well, yes, I can ask. But even if I do ask, can they do it? And then this becomes this weird math. You can go, Well, if my suffering ends and the family around me no longer is suffering and we're not spending all this money on my medical care, then isn't this sort of a net positive? This is is kind of a Peter Singer idea, but the happiness in the world increases, there's an economic boon and all these kind of things, yet I'm not free to do that. 
And so if I can't legally do this, then my life and my body really aren't mine. Well, if they aren't mine, who do they belong to? Well, they belong to the state. A long time ago, we all belonged to a king. If you were born, you just were a vassal of the king, and he could do whatever he wanted with you. Like if he wanted to be entertained, he could have your guts pulled out in front of a crowd. So maybe we've gotten a little bit better than that. We're slightly better off, uh, but there's still some major problems with the idea of governments thinking they know what's best for your body. Now, this is an argument that we'll come back to at the very end in part four relating to COVID. Also about consent. You should be free to be unmolested through visual or auditory intrusion, right? Such as having a Randy admirer cat call you or having invasive advertisements that you did not consent to put into your eyeballs. But here's the problem is you do definitely need to be able to hear and see because if there's an accident and sirens are going off, for the benefit of the community, people need to be able to hear that and see that. What's crazy about this is you're not free from being offended by anything or anyone. I guess you're free to react to that so you can flip off the douchebag who whistled at you. And then you have this other benefit being part of a society where that person should not be free to hurt you. The reverse of this might be true if the social contract did not exist. You flip the guy off and he comes after you. And so then you have to protect yourself with something. And all you have is like a bow made out of car parts because we're living in like a Mad Max world. And, you know, you just got done nibbling on a rat by a fire. You can kind of see how the social contract is a good thing. It doesn't protect you from everything, but the situations are a little bit better. I think we know that we're in some version of a utopia right now because we're not nibbling on rat by a fire. But there's still a long ways to go. And we still have to push this project along a lot more. So I think we've beaten this idea up pretty well. Uh, but basically the premise here is you're not totally free. You might be more free than other people, and that's great. But we also live in a society. And part of that is you don't get to do whatever you want whenever you want. And this works out really well for a lot of people in our society. But it's worked out very, very poorly for some. All right, we've made it to part two. The problems with rationality and how communication can help. Another man walks into a bar. A lot of people seem to be doing that. He sees a bunch of red and he's blue. So he sits down, not sure what to do. He looks around. He goes, hey, how are y'all going to go about handling that drunk guy over there in the corner that's vomiting on himself? One guy says, you know what, we should call the cops. Another guy says, take his wallet and throw him out. And then this third guy says, you know what, I'll drive him home. A conversation ensues that the last method is the kindest. It eases the burden on the police, it doesn't get them involved, that saves a lot of hassle, and it also keeps the guy from retaliating when he wakes up, which makes the bar owner happy. So really, having somewhat free speech is key to democracy, and in part because this requires public discourse to reach what we're going to call consensual norms. But there's sort of been these issues since the Enlightenment where everyone uses rationality, and they all think that they're correct because it's rational. And as discussed previously, we can both be completely rational and reach completely different conclusions. Just like in the bar, there's three different rational options for handling the drunk guy, but we need to decide on which one was considered by the group to be the best. So there's this guy, Jürgen Abermas, and I don't know that much about him really, but he points out that Adorno and Horkheimer really missed something in their critique of the Enlightenment and its rationality and its kind of ends-means tendency. See, they sort of believe that once we deconstructed all the grand narratives, once we got rid of the capital T truth and just had lots and lots of lowercase truth, 
then we'd get better at being able to see that most of these big truths and narratives came from individual desires or points of view. And then once we could see that the grand strategy behind something like slavery or the Holocaust or religion was developed through an ends-means relationship and an ethos that could be broken down, well then we could get past these kind of societally assumed truths. You could dissolve these truths in favor of rational thought. So hooray, right? That sounds great. But then they were paying attention to rationality and they thought, well, what's it going to do after all that? It's going to consume everything possible. Maybe it's going to turn back on itself, undercutting its own foundations. So this is super brilliant and scary. And then Habermas kind of comes along and says, yeah, I think that, you know, there are problems with the Enlightenment, granted. But the biggest problem with it is we're not done with this project yet. And you're leaving out some things. There's also this problem with this theory of rationality becoming all Ouroboros. It's not very practical or pragmatic. You guys really need to get out more. And he points out that yes, while an individual might have strategic reason for wanting something, then it colors his point of view, and that leads to instrumental reasoning and action, and that way you turn individuals into an ends-means relationship, he says, well, there's this third thing that y'all aren't really talking about. He called it communicative rationality. And it's basically using knowledge and language and action to reach consensual norms. Basically, this is the conversation at the bar about guys trying to figure out how to reach a decision to handle the drunk. Habermas says you need four things to truly communicate and reach agreement. It must be intelligible, so I can't speak Klingon. And part two, there must be an assumption that the conversation is worth having. So telling me about your Klingon time travel spaceship in your garage, maybe we're not going to have that conversation. Part three, the person you're communicating with has to believe what they're saying. You better not be lying when you're saying you're a time traveling Klingon prince with a vast fortune and you need my help to get it into the country. Part four, the reasoning has to make sense to both people, right? So, wait, you want my social security number? And why is such a rich time-traveling Klingon prince talking to me in the first place? So, how does this all play out, right? In, in the real world, there's these methods we need to kind of consider here. If you start a conversation by calling somebody a hypocrite for claiming to believe in Jesus while supporting a misogynist lying bigot who's in office right now, well, you broke rule two and maybe rule four, right? You're probably never going to truly communicate or reach agreement with those people. You might be intelligible, which is rule one, and you obviously believe what you're saying uh, because you're passionate about it, but your logic, number four, is not really aligned with them. And thus the conversation fails step two, which is not worth having for them. So if you start with something like, how do we fix the problem with the drunk guy in the corner, you might just end up having a conversation where you all can agree on some things for a while. Until your fourth beer when you mention that you adore Bernie the socialist Sanders, and then you've basically started speaking Klingon again. Now, interestingly for me, I would say that our current president fails in all four areas of communicative rationality, and thus he and I are no longer in communication. He uses sentence fragments about nonsense that I doubt he understands or believes, so that fails all four. In that way, to me, he's more similar to that drunk that we need to get out of the bar than to the guy sitting around the table talking. However, our president seems to be communicating very well with a whole portion of our society. So how do we bridge that divide? Why do smart, moral, not drunk people that I know think he is okay? It is so weird to me that I think they have somehow been part of a conspiracy. They've been instrumentalized. They're being used as a sort of means to a nefarious ends, and it's all been masterminded by the Russians who are converting us into a politics of eternity. Da-da-da-dum. So is this conspiracy or truth? Ask Timothy Snyder.
if you read one of Timothy Snyder's books, then it feels more truth than conspiracy. Anyway, Habermas is a fan of democracy. And he notes that while some people are instrumentalizing other people and they're using people as a means to an end, this really fails to sort of recognize some of the really complex methods of coordinating that humans have built into our sociological interactions. We tend to start from similar views and values, and we work together by having intelligible conversations, and then we collectively move forward. And oftentimes, this has been for the benefit of people. Part 3. The Social Sphere Today Another man walks into a bar. I know, shocker, huh? Well, he sees a whole bunch of red elephants in this bar, and he's like, what are these red elephants doing here? I don't know. I'm seeing red. So he charges like a bull, but of course, he's not a bull. He is a donkey, because of course, a lot of donkeys walk into bars. Uh, But instead of kicking ass, he gets himself kicked out. And this proves to the red elephants that the donkey, you know, blue donkeys especially, are really dumb. And this proves to the donkey that red elephants are jerks for kicking him out. Um, Both of them end up posting videos on Instagram and Facebook, and they all think they're winning. But really, Facebook wins and everybody else loses. What's really kind of fascinating and scary right now is our tendency to be programmed via social media. And of course, we have identity problems via capitalism and psychopathologies and all this stuff. But social media can serve as this sort of quasi and really crappy stand-in for communicative rationality. At least we think it can. So we started in about 2007 forfeiting authentic relations and conversation for more performative communication. This was a time period when the like button and the thumbs up and the retweet started showing up on social media. So now we speak publicly and people can actually rate us on our speech. So just ponder that for a second. Your speech is rated. And if we're trained through this sort of Pavlovian response, then what does that lead to? So sociologically, the concept is that we become who other people think we are. And if people really are socially constructed through a type of mirroring where you see other people's reactions to certain behaviors that you have, and that alters the way that you continue to behave, then what kind of personality does constant applause for increasingly extreme, and of course entertaining, viewpoints actually end up creating? And the problem is, if you have like guys like Antonio Gramsci, he points out that the way to get acceptance in a social movement is to actually become increasingly irrational. Thus, the more bought in you are. So I can out-human you. I can out-tough you. I can out-empathize you. Right? So you take everything to the next level, and that shows that you are dedicated. Whenever this kind of person tries to practice communicative rationality, right? they end up in a group, and they're trying to reach an agreement on something. The problem is, does the reasoning hold up? I mean, does this person actually believe what they're saying, or is everything performative at this point? And if the answer is no to either one of these, then we effectively remove ourselves from step two, right? Which is, is this conversation worth having? Because you're basically speaking Klingon. And in so doing, we end up kicking ourselves out of the public sphere. Uh, And I mean, you know, it's fine to sort of just have team rah-rah spirit, and if all you care about is your own team getting points, that's cool. But I'm sort of more interested myself in a win-win scenario than some sort of zero-sum game or some sort of lose-lose game which is seemingly where we're going now. So one way to kind of think about this gap between sides on any kind of issue, such as politics or COVID or whatever it may be, there's a tool that Jonathan Haidt says in psychology that they use, 
people have a tendency to ask themselves, instead of saying something like, should I believe that? They ask themselves the question, do I have to believe that? And the answer now is almost always no. There's always a counterpoint. There's always an argument. If you look at some sort of fact checker and the fact checker says, well, Trump lies five to ten more times than other politicians, then the response to that kind of thing from somebody who doesn't want to believe it is that the fact checkers are biased and they're untrustworthy. The question is, do I have to believe that? And the answer is no. So there's no longer this capital T truth. We've gotten rid of that with our deconstructive rationality, right, from earlier in the episode. And psychologically, we no longer have a definitive source for truth because we've deconstructed all these things. Because as our narratives and strategies have become increasingly instrumentalized by marketing companies and campaign managers, we find ourselves increasingly emotionally driven and we're caught into these amplifying echo chambers that give us even more and more reasons not to trust others. So at this point, your truth is really a decision that you made at some point a long time ago, yet it's increasingly defining you. Hate also sort of mentions this increasing divisiveness that started when political parties somehow became personality parties, personality types, almost like archetypes. And at this point, you're no longer fighting for issues where if I could compromise around what happens to the drunk guy in the bar, we can reach some sort of mutual benefit. What happens is the compromise is you're fighting for yourself. So if you lose any part of yourself, you lose all of yourself. And people don't want to give ground because they feel they would not know themselves anymore if they gave up on this. They would be a hypocrite. So we now find ourselves in this pandemic. And from everything I've heard, it could be worse. I've heard that this is actually a very gentle slap from Mother Nature. Or maybe it's from a safety failure in a lab in China. I don't really know. It could be like a super spreading MERS virus, a 34% mortality rate. Instead of this sort of guesstimated 3 to 1.4% mortality rate of covid and all of this is arguable, because at the end of the day, if I ask you if you have to believe something, your answer is no. You can always find somebody else with another counterpoint that will align with the belief system that you want to have. But this doesn't necessarily make it true. This reminds me of when people were denying climate change, and there was this kind of fallacy where they would look around them and say, global warming, it's snowing here. And so what they're really looking at is weather. They're not looking at climate. And the problem really is that humans have a limited ability to understand scale over time. We actually quite suck at realizing a problem unless there's sort of punishment and consequences immediately. So we look around our neighborhood and we don't see the cascade effect where a super complex system is flashing errors at us and throwing red lights and we just kind of slam it in the closet and we go sit on the porch and enjoy a beer. You know, and what's so crazy about this is you look out across the lawn and you think everything's fine. There's my neighbor. He's watering his lawn. He's great. Well, he may have COVID. You don't know. You don't have the senses to understand that or to see it. Thus, your own sight, the thing that you rely on so much, you keep reaffirming your own incorrect beliefs by using the wrong tools. Part four, let's do this. The last man walks into the bar. He declares himself a patriot who won't live in fear, who puts his life in God's hands. He is brave, he is strong, and the government can't tell him what to do with his body unless it go to war and die. 
He is so brave, in fact, that every morning he spends at least five minutes strapping various guns and knives to his body just in case a super ultra-rare opportunity arises in which he can save somebody and be a hero. But when this hero is asked by his government to wear a mask that maybe takes two seconds to put on and doesn't weigh anything, uh, so he won't inadvertently kill somebody weaker or older than him in a community that he professes to love so much, he refuses because it's against his rights and God's plan. And the people in the bar applaud. So this is a long way to circle around, but the crux is, what are you actually free to do? As part of this social contract where you should be protected from your government by illness, violence, racism, etc., are you free to not wear a mask? I mean, they can fine you for it now, right? But as mentioned earlier, your body and life are not totally yours anyway. You're not free to do with them as you wish. Are you free to open your store and make money to support your lifestyle and family, despite the increased odds of spreading a disease? Because I also want to be free from that disease that you're helping to spread. But that impinges upon your freedom to live the life that you want to live. And what I bump into here in Texas is that to be free is to turn your life over to God's plan. And this is somehow pro-American. So it's a Texas spirit thing to face down hardship with this stoic resolve. Even though there's a mask and hand sanitizer right next to you, you won't use it because you're free. I, you know, I don't get it. It's downright patriotic somehow to sacrifice your health and your community's health and the elderly for the economy. But could you not be a patriot for human life? Uh, could you not be a patriot to reduce suffering? Uh, why can bravery not be inaction? Why does it always have to be action? Why can't you just stay at home? I mean, it's just not Alamo enough. I mean, are we going to have to red dawn this virus? I follow a guy on social media, a sort of comedian life coach guy named J.P. Sears. He put out this video that was shortly after I released my last podcast and it made me think about a lot of things, but his overall point is that we should be free to make our own decisions because we know our own bodies, we have our own rights. Uh, we all undertake risks all the time when we're going through the world, such as choosing to drive a car to work. That's a risk. And if we're scared of falling down, he sort of suggests maybe we should wear a helmet. And, and this is all sort of parody, right? And it's sarcastic. You should wear a vest because you're afraid of drowning. What about lightning? Perhaps you should just stay still and stay inside forever. So what's funny about JP is he's really preaching some good things that you should have an open mind and you should continue to look at the new stats and not believe the old stats that the media was telling you because they're biased. And he's right that the media is biased and you should keep an open mind. But I'm curious about the direction this leads. What's fascinating to me is that this is a very individualist approach. It's all about the individual finding what they need within this moment. And so he's putting out these videos and they're getting tons of views and tons of followers because this is the message people want to hear. It's about you and you controlling yourself and the government can't control you and all these kind of wonderful things. But he never addresses that your freedom to behave how you want impacts other people's freedom from getting sick. So the question is, do I have to believe COVID is dangerous? Well, no, not for myself. However, the bigger problem is we're all part of a community and we're all under a social contract. 
and people in our community are getting sick. However, some of us are not willing to change our behavior to protect those around us within the community. So there's this sort of tremendous arrogance and this assumption that we might be right and that our beliefs end up hurting other people. Yet, oddly enough, here's what's so crazy is we can't see this contradiction. We keep saying that we have the right to do something and the government can't take away our rights. Yet, meanwhile, we're taking away other people's rights to safety because we won't moderate our behavior. So here's really where it gets kind of preachy is that I was sort of raised on this myth that the strong should help the weak, right? That small tasks of politeness were the right way to behave. And even though I mess up a lot, this is sort of something that still sticks in the back of my head, that if we're such amazing badasses in Texas, why are we not capable of changing our behavior just a tiny bit for such a short period of time? Are we stubborn because if we have to wear a mask, then next we're going to lose our guns or somehow lose God? Like, that's not even possible. At this point, you start speaking Klingon because the logic just doesn't work, and I don't think anyone actually believes that. These are just these strange fallacies we say so that we can keep on behaving the way we want. So if wearing a mask and standing six feet apart from somebody is the only thing asked of you to save a life and people won't do it, then that means you have to either be utterly selfish or maybe you're a sociopath. I don't know. And then there's this other thing. That is, maybe we have fallen prey to a mind virus that got implanted a long time ago. And that mind virus is actually the tool that's being used to spread the actual virus. Thank you. I hope you got something out of the podcast. If you did, please do me a small favor and subscribe or leave me a comment. Just some sort of interaction. You know, really for me, the point of DIY is to do it yourself. It's to sort of reject laziness and normal ways of thinking in in favor of growth and learning but i think also importantly it's to take on the challenge of building and repairing next week we're going to tackle the panopticon uh, after making an art piece about it and having a little conversation with my buddy john whitfield it seems like something that we need to talk about <laughs>